reevaluating and reimagining what it means to be human would literally collapse all existing social relations. To be human is to be imbued with the capacity to create time and space, because that is really what it is that is at the site, is the kernel of Black suffering, is everyone else who is not Black is imbued with the capacity, spatial and temporal creation. Hi, everyone. This is Ava Bravada-Keating, and welcome to Psychologies of Liberation, a podcast that examines the goals and practices of psychology with radical imagination to help us all get free. This podcast is for all of us world builders who are not only interested in grappling with systems, structures, and ideologies that threaten our well-being, but who dream into new futures for relationship that are grounded in joy, equity, and everyone's right to beautiful, radiant things. Today's conversation is with the incredible Dr. Ahmad Washington, Associate Professor of Counseling and Human Development, as well as Pan-African Studies at the University of Louisville. Among other things, we discuss the violent origins of existentialism, Black structural positionality, bringing consciousness of systemic oppressions to individualized therapeutic spaces, and reimagining what it means to be human. Please enjoy. Well, I was actually just going to ask you, like, if you would take a minute to introduce yourself in the way that you like to be known. Well, my name is Dr. Ahmad Washington, associate professor uh, with a dual appointment in the Department of Counseling and Human Development and the Department of Pan-African Studies. I look to explore the very uh, real ways that historically those disciplines and departments and theoretical, ontological sort of orientations have informed and been antagonistic towards one another. So I'm just really, really grateful for having the dual appointment because of how it allows me to take the insights from an interdisciplinary approach like Pan-African Studies and apply it to um, the lived experiences of Black people, specifically as it pertains to counseling and, and the helping profession. Wonderful. I'm going to just get right into it and ask you a little bit about the ways in which uh, interdisciplinary approaches to liberatory psychology or to critical psychology, to decolonized psychology, whatever we want to call it, are part and parcel of the work in in your very unique view from being um, someone who stitches together different perspectives in disciplines that are historically sort of um, uh, alienated from one another or at least operate in silos. Yeah, um, it's not coincidental. I think it's something like divinely sort of orchestrated. My existence in Council Red is really a function of some abiding and enduring um, existential questions. I went to psychology looking for answers to some very real existential questions about what it meant to be young Black and male in the South, like to be a young Black boy. And um, Like I've often told my audiences is that instead of finding answers and assuring answers about um, that structural position, not an identity, like I'm very clear about like understanding blackness as a structural position, a site of social construction as opposed to a compilation of identities that um, psychology implicated me in my own crisis. 
right? So, and it wasn't something that I initially understood, but gradually the more classes that I took, I was like, there is no real engagement with like the black as a site of suffering and a site of resistance. And I knew that I wasn't receiving like adequate insights and answers to those questions. It's just, it's just taken me this long to get here. That insistence, that desire to find adequate answer uh, still really informs the conceptual writing, the reading, the literature reviews that I conduct, um, because I think it's something absolutely essential, particularly as so many council aid programs look to recruit um, diverse faculty and diverse students into these programs. It's important because just based on my own experiences and anecdotes that I've gleaned from conversations with other folks who look and exist like me is there's a very significant realization, there's a profound realization that we don't find adequate answers to the questions that we're longing uh, to be addressed. I mean, it's wonderful. It makes me think and, and want to ask you, do you feel as though our discipline um, and sort of the, the structures that it exists within and that it creates for itself actually fail to provide the kind of answers that someone like you uh, seeks? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, because what I'm learning is, is like therapy, these theories are still wedded to a narrative structure. And I'm like, I love books. So like this book right here, this uh, red, white, black, Frank Wilderson, um, Frank Wilderson, and I guess a body of scholarship uh, commonly referred to as like Afro-pessimism is pessimistic about the sort of critical theories that have dominated the, uh, the academies and the limitations of those critical theories to explain the very specific structural position of the Black, right? So the limitations, the inability of the discipline, counseling, psychology to speak to that very unique structural position is because those disciplines are understood within this very subtle but profound narrative arc about stability, disruption, and then this redemption. And as we understand the emergence of Blackness as something that is devoid, something that is, something that is abject, there is no prior plentitude. There is no moment of stability because Blackness comes into existence as something that is antithetical to what it means to be human. And this was something that I was like just this past semester as I taught a chapter on existentialism is like existentialism essentially comes into existence at the height of the Second World War. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, so what was the impetus for existentialism's emergence? And they're like, violence. So how is it, why is it that the major historical impetus for just thinking about what does it mean to be human and notions of transcendence only come into our consciousness in the 1940s and after this unbelievable set of circumstances called the transatlantic slave trade, <laughs> right, which for many people stands as the exemplar for notions around being and, and non-being. And for me, that just reinforces the idea that these conversations are about a collective consciousness, a European collective consciousness, or 
probably better articulated a European and non-Black notion of what it means to be human. What it means to be human and to have a subordinated humanity, but those conversations have very little to do with the essence of what it means to suffer as a Black person, which is to be not considered human at all. Not a degraded human being, but to not be human, to be antagonistic towards what it means to be human, right? So I don't think there's anything accidental about the limitations of the discourse because the discourses and disciplines couldn't exist without some antithesis to what it means to be, what it means to exist. Right. And so, I mean, I wonder if liberatory psychology needs to reckon with this, like, this humanity as it has previously been created in contradistinction to a non-human, right? Um, And create a sort of new way of understanding what it is to be a being, right? And to be someone who can experience meaning and construct and create meaning. Right. That's the, I think that's the, that's the dilemma is that the question becomes liberated from what? Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem is that when you talk about these concepts that presumably lead us toward a more egalitarian, a more closer to some notion of freedom, it's, the question becomes, what is it meant to be free? Free from what? And Fanon would say to just not be a Negro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. if psychology stands on the shoulders of philosophy, not analytical philosophy, but like Western philosophical thought and European enlightenment, what does it mean to be a bearer of the light? What does it mean to be um, blessed, to be um exposed to the light there has to be because otherwise like i'm learning so much about um semiotics and like you can't have a construction a conception of light without its opposite it's opposite right and like Mm -hmm. frank said like you can only create community unless you know where the horizon to community ends Mm, could you speak more to that that piece it's exactly what you just acknowledged is like you understand community and you understand psychically what does it mean to be part of this community if you can look over there and say those are people and this is where like again afro-pessimism and anti-blackness and particularly like the notion of like social death um have really informed my understanding of like the limitations of a multiculturalism or um, anti-racism, right? Because I, I there is tremendous utility in being able to say like, this is what it means to be racist. This is anti-racist. This is what white supremacy is. But then also recognizing like, yeah, let's move beyond a very rigid white black binary and understand the very real ways that other subordinated humans, right, racial minorities are still enticed to emulate whiteness because they understand the last thing that you want to be is black. But again, that's where it's like when I think about liberatory psychology or even decolonial practices is that, first of all, like 
Tucking Yang reminding us that decolonization is a process, it is about the restitution of land and something we shouldn't trivialize through metaphor, right? Decolonization is not a metaphor. But if you think about it, if decolonization fundamentally is about the restitution of land, I've learned to ask the question, what must be restored to the Black, right? If it's like the restitution of land is also to recognize, respect the cosmology of Indigenous people, then what do you give back to Black people, right? Which is what so many Black critical theorists have said about, like, yeah, if we rectify class, meaning we address and take seriously the consequences of capital and capitalism, what does that have to do with the unique experiences of subjugation that Black people experience? It is not only a matter of class, what else is it? If we talk about decolonization, it is not merely the evisceration of a cosmology and the occupation of land. Then what does that mean for Black people? Right? So I don't, I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure you've seen this where before there's a talk, um, some will, someone will offer a land acknowledgement. And then they might also talk about a slave acknowledgement. But that notion of slavery and subjugation is a matter of exploited labor. And so much of what I'm reading now has to deal with existentialism and ontology about, well, slavery was about more than the exploitation of labor. And again, if we're talking about liberatory psychology or liberatory practices with regards to Black structural suffering, then what must be reinstituted? What recalibration must happen that exceeds the idea, exceeds the boundary, exceeds the conversation about land? So, Well, I I mean, what do you think? What needs to happen? Well, I think about what... um, Because it's easy to say, like, create more space, like reimagine what it means to be human. Um, But I think that's easier said than done. Of course. Yeah. Right. I think when we talk about the elimination of, like, colonies, like expelling people, expelling um, white people from indigenous land, there's something tangible Right. There's something strategic that we can entertain that would inform a type of practice. When I say like question what it means to be human and by human, I'm thinking about like. Frank Wilderson talks about spatial and temporal capacity. He, the, the example that he always provides is like it is not 227. <laughs> it's not 227. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that That's is what a, we tell ourselves. <laughs> because of a journey well i mean i can't mark historically when it happens but essentially that's a relationship between white people and um and relations to land and other um other variables labor right and and not just labor a particular various types of violence right so Mm -hmm. the capacity to create time and space Right. That this was once Turtle Island and is now commonly called the United States of America. So reevaluating and reimagining what it means to be human would literally collapse all existing social relations, because that is what it means to be human. To be human is to be imbued with the capacity to create time and space. 
So we would have to literally invite and compel folks to abandon, to eschew what it means to be human. Because that is really what it is that is at the site, is the kernel, right? That um, is the essence of Black suffering is everyone else who is not Black is imbued with the capacity, spatial and temporal creation. Whether it's a National Football League, like I think about these things in ways that I didn't before, that you can literally say I've created an entity comprised of 31 teams and called that entity the National Football League and then say the winner of this trophy is the winner of the Super Bowl. Like that's that we know every year is in mid-February and that's what it means to be imbued with capacity that there are owners who are allowed to accumulate individuals as pieces of property Right. So they become extensions of the, the owner's imperatives. Right. So I think that's what it would require in terms of to alleviate the types of suffering, the essential suffering that um, that black people experience. You know, I think about what you're saying and I am with you all the way. And I also find myself a little bit adrift and overwhelmed, like with what that actually means you know, and how we can, as clinicians, as practitioners, as people who are interested in pushing forward the project of, like, deconstructing what, the way we think about humanity now so that we can create a humanity that is for everyone, truly, right? And, I mean, I wonder, like, could, could you speak a little bit more specifically to the way that you see this happening, like, in your own work or um, amongst your colleagues or... Um, you know, in, in real tangible efforts that are happening in the here and now um, to, to try to help us all get free. Yeah, so there's a book, Constructing the Self. Constructing America? Cushman. In terms of like a very sort of like tangible, pragmatic, practical approach to the deconstruction you just alluded to is like, I want students to understand that the helping profession is really about helping to resolve anxieties about what does it mean to be a person. <laughs> right. And I think part of that work is constrained. Part of that work is inhibited because there is this emphasis on the accumulation of practical skills that it doesn't allow us counselor educators the adequate time, assuming we have the insights to help students understand that these seemingly neutral theoretical orientations are everything but. That fundamentally they are still invested in a notion of meritocracy and a creation of the self that is highly individualistic. And those sort of orientations have a lot to do with colonization, imperialism, and the emergence of Europe as we know it, the West. And I think there is more than enough work that's already been done to demonstrate how that deconstruction could happen. The problem is professionalization, meaning accrediting bodies and accreditation standards, mm -hmm. don't give us the adequate time and space to unpack that in the way that it deserves. 
I mean, again, you're talking about temporality too, right? As something that is squished and like is absolutely, yeah. <laughs> that is exactly what I'm saying. It just, it just, like I got chill bumps because I'm like, that's what it means to to to, yeah. to be able to say, this is what it means to be a professional. That you have 48 hours to do it if you're in a K prep accredited program, soon to be 60. But we're going to give you, we're going to allot, we're going to afford perhaps one course to help reorient you to more deeply appreciate and understand what social justice would look like and require. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that. That's that's a different understanding of temporality, spatial and temporal capacity. Yep. You know, then I think about the ways in which temporality is commodified under racialized capitalism. And I mean, I think that a lot of counselors would point to cost, right, and lack of time, like lack of resource um, as something that prevents them from doing the kind of work that they want to do with their clients. So I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, Dr. Washington. The problem is, is that, for instance, the students that I work with, I'll never forget. I was having a conversation with some students and they were just talking about how unbelievably exhausted that they were. and. Somewhere during the conversation, one of the students talked about like, man, this exhaustion really is a function of the five-day work week. And I'm like, man, these are the same students who grapple with not just their identities, but recognizing that their ability to function is already structurally determined. And I'm like, I wonder if we were in the context of counseling if I were a fly on the wall and they were working with some, working with a client, if that same insight would inform their work with that person, that although this person might be experiencing a very specific and unique set of circumstances that precipitated their coming to counseling, could I also be aware of the very real ecological factors that have everything to do with capital, race, sexuality, and I don't, again, I don't think that we've, we're allowed to create the sort of context where um, our students, future counselors understand and recognize how that exists with them first um, and how it also manifests in the clients that they work with. Right, absolutely. I mean, and I think about sort of like the behavioral turn of our profession too, and the ways that that really emphasized clinician as tactician, um, someone who is expert, right, and who is removed, who like exists apart from the world um, rather than within it, just like our clients do. Because, you know, and this, of course, speaks to this uh, myth of neutrality, right, that you mentioned already. But, yeah, I mean, I suppose, like, I, I think of liberatory psychology as really um, needing to fundamentally shift the way that we teach people to be mental health workers as well. And, and the sort of, not only just the content, but the whole structure. And you as um, a counselor educator, I imagine have a lot of thoughts about this. Yeah, so my undergraduate degree was in psychology, but as I was making my pivot, I was exposed to a lot of early black psychologist work. So, Marimba Ani, Wade Nobles, Asa Hilliard, Kobe Cambone, and the pervading 
idea, the idea that pervaded Black psychology was that psychology was derived from an African concept, soul cool, which is about soul. So psychology was really like soul work, right? And the heightening of the spirit, the realization that our bodies are just envelopes that really contain, you might argue, interfere with the coming into fruition of our highest possible selves. And that was very different than the sort of like indoctrination orientation to psychology that I derived from like my undergraduate studies, where it was this like mind-body dualism and it was merely about cognitions and correcting behaviors, but nothing about helping the client to first recognize their divine origins and living a life that is in alignment with that transcendent being that we all reflect. So that in and of itself was a very sort of like distinct sort of orientation to the work that I had. And I know that there are so many unconventional approaches to therapy. I'm thinking about black feminism and the way that it informs liberatory practices, which say that there is something, there is something inherently wrong with how societies have been structured hierarchically and rooted in subjugation and oppression. And if we don't tackle those ecological variables first or simultaneously, then we do our clients and the profession a disservice. So I'm always asking my students to think differently about what success with a client would look like if part of their work, regardless of their theoretical orientation, could encompass some notion of critical consciousness and raising of awareness but I still don't think that there is sufficient time to invite students to think about what that would look like practically. But I'm also recognizing that many of the sites where they're honing those professional skills aren't occupied by folks who themselves have thought critically about what it means to be a counselor. Right. I mean, and I think also about the sort of economic positionality of many of those sites where students are performing or are honing their professional skills or, frankly, graduates, you know, pe- people who are working as mental health workers in the field um, are practicing that sort of economically position themselves as adjacent to like petite bourgeois or like individual business, like kind of micro business owners, people who have private practices or um people who are sort of like comfortably situated in the middle, the upper middle class, let's say. Um, And certainly that is not true of all counselors or of all therapists. Um, And I mean, I think especially if we look at things like community mental health, but all of this really marks like a bifurcated model of care that we've got going on, at least in this country in regards to mental health. So I guess I also think about those like economic structural pieces um, as something that then sort of like shapes the psychology of us, the clinicians, right? Um, And in many ways obfuscates um, the need for the sort of, um, I I hope I'm getting you right, like this sort of uh, radicalization that you're talking about, like this really, this critical, critical consciousness raising, right? That we are trying to do not only for ourselves, but also with our clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Harry Belafonte died recently, I want to say like last week, and his name and his spirit, I think for me, are relevant to this conversation because 
the conversation that he had with Dr. King, where Dr. King says to him, our fight for civil rights has been just. But he often wonders, King did, about integration because he was integrating his people into a burning house. And King also talked about like the three overlapping evils of racism, militarism, and consumerism. And I think for me, that stands at the crux of, again, what is it, what is it historically meant to be human is power and accumulation. So when I think about some of the, not necessarily theoretical orientations to helping, but when I think about how often um, financial literacy and home ownership are oftentimes presented to racialized and dispossessed communities, I'm thinking like, yeah, those things are important. Those things matter, but they aren't essential to helping us reconfigure the types of social relations that reproduce capitalism and how in a very real sense, capitalism and and other forms of uh, subjugation are responsible for the distress that people experience. Right. So when I think about like, how we intervene, it's if someone comes to a doctor's office and they are suffering from pneumonia, you don't give them a cough suppressant to deal with the symptoms, right? You're doing your very, you're doing your very best to find out what is it that causes pneumonia? What is at the core of the sickness itself? So as much as I think that we should be preparing practitioners to deal with the most immediate manifestations of you know, psychological discord, I think we don't do our clients any any favors if we don't connect that discord to the very real problems that are set in motion um, because of a system of hierarchies, capital, and structural racism. Oh my gosh, so incredibly well said, Dr. Washington. If we could jump back just for a minute to what you were talking about regarding the black psychologists that you were learning from as you were coming into this profession and this sort of idea of body as envelope. You know, there's so much talk about like uh, somatics and embodiment, right, uh, as part of a liberatory psychological practice. And, you know, all of this, the, the body keeps the score stuff, right? And like trauma as not just a cognitive or intellectual event, but also as something that is experienced holistically, which includes our body and our spirit, right? Um, so I wonder, like, how do you think about embodiment or grappling with a holistic being as part of a, a liberatory psychology? I'm still thinking about it. Like, and I, I use my own experience in terms of, like, double consciousness and having seen myself for so many years through the eyes of not just an individual oppressor, but a template of what it means to be human or successful. So an example recently that happened, I was in a parking garage and I was getting out of my car and immediately I realized that there was a white woman whose car was near mine. And before I could, before I could catch myself, I felt myself policing the way that I moved as not to cause any hysteria on her part. And I bring that up because there's an excerpt in, I want to say it's Black Skin, White Mask, where um, Fanon talks about like something as mundane as retrieving a cigarette from 
like he has to be hyper aware of every movement that his body makes. Right. And in that moment, I was doing everything in my power as not to make this white woman afraid of me. <laughs> and I'm like, how is that any different than the thinking of someone like Emmett Till or Philandro Castillo or Trayvon Martin? Right. Where you have to be like hyper aware of how your body moves and which means you're being hyper aware of how the very historical structuring of this world, not just North America, not just these United States of America, but literally the entire world that your presence, not your thoughts, not your ideas, but your literal body, <laughs> your literal body, right? Is a, to quote Fanon, is a phobogenic entity. And I just want students to like sit with that. And then the question then becomes, what do you do? And then theoret the therapeutically, we've been conditioned to then work with the individual about how to police themselves, about maybe it means speaking more proper English, or maybe it means going to future your education. Maybe it means uh, a particular type of attire right? Never attending to the very real ways that none of that matters. None of that really matters, right? So that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the body keeping the score in terms of like the very real and profound impacts that trauma can have. But I'm, that scenario, that anecdote just really reinforced the idea about like how anti-Blackness encroaches on Black people's psyches, right? There's a very real hyper-awareness, and not only with whites and non-Black people, but even with Black people themselves, right? Um, so, and that's how I think about um, the very real and tangible ways that anti-Blackness has... Um, very tangible impacts on the way that the body is allowed to move and, and function in the world. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, I, I wonder like, you know, hermeneutically, if rendering explicit that self-policing that you're speaking to actually in and of itself, though it may not be complete, um, helps to sort of spur uh, the therapeutic process, right, of reckoning with that, right, of even um, sort of allowing yourself to not be gaslit, right, by the ways in which your body, your being is impacted by these historical legacies, by these economic legacies, by these things that exist structurally outside of you, but also impact you as individual. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was just reading an article by Jared Sexton where he was talking about what could that do in terms of expanding our notion of the social determinants of health to have a more honest engagement with the material ways that racism has myriad consequences on the body uh, would move us beyond phrases and terms like microaggressions. Like, because the white woman didn't do anything necessarily. Her mere presence meaning my presence in her space 
was the thing that set those uh, cascading thoughts and emotions into uh, into action, into motion. Right. And is sort of tacitly reifying difference in ways that are not helpful for anyone, but especially are not helpful for you. Right. Absolutely. You know, I want to ask you in our final minutes, Dr. Washington, um, if you could muse a little bit on the topic of how you'd communicate to next generations of counselors or community builders in the mental health space, how to activate a liberatory spirit in the people that they're working with, that they're engaging. Um, And also, you know, if you'd like to, you can certainly speak to uh, the educational side of this, like how we can think about training up new clinicians and mental health workers as well. Yeah, I think for me, it gets back to um, one of the first things that I said in terms of like, if we're asking about liberatory practices, then what is it that we seek to be liberated from? Um, and giving students the space to, I mean, deeply explore, not on a sort of like uh, superficial, like, oh, we like to really sit with students to be in community with students where they can explore, well, what are the historical and contemporary causes for whether you call it alienation, whether you call it dispossession, whether you, like, what are the things, like the ways that our engagement with psychoanalysis, like I'm learning so much about the relevance of psychoanalysis to anti-Blackness. What if we engage more critically with Minstrelsy and the Bread Savage in Cushman's book. Mm. So that's the second or third chapter. Where, what if we had a different orientation, a different understanding around what the discipline, what psychology and counseling did with regards to quantifying notions of white superiority? Right? Have we taken full account for all the ways that whiteness, in terms of who comprises the profession and what informs our practices are those the things that we need liberation from. Because I think what will happen is, and this is again, just based on my own limited experiences with students. When I ask them about, Hey, what would it mean for you to have these conversations, not with poor and disadvantaged black families, what would it look like for you to have these conversations with your family on the 4th of July? And they cringe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they cringe because they know full well it would mean to jeopardize their comfortable position in that community. Hey, it would mean taking risks that I don't think that they are prepared to entertain. I would encourage students and my colleagues, and I often do this in my work, is to think critically about what is it that we need to be liberated from, and not because you believe it is helpful and advantageous to the other, right? How might your life be improved if you'd relinquish the notion of I'm a human being? Right? What would it mean for you collectively? So I think that's what that's what I would implore students and colleagues to think critically about is what is it that we need to be liberated from? 
you know, and I really appreciate the ways in which you're calling upon the provider, right, quote unquote, to be doing their own work really actively and not solo, but in community as part of their their praxis, as part of their education, as part of their ongoing consciousness development as a human being, right? Or a non-human, right. as we've been saying. Right, right, right. <laughs> I want to just really thank you so much for taking this time. It's I just feel like lit up from our discussion and thank you for letting me witness you. <laughs> no problem, because it's funny because one of the things that I was doing today was really leaning into Black existentialism. So mm-hmm. I, just, I just downloaded some work by Lewis Gordon and others because for me it is it's the most honest and most fruitful body of scholarship to inform the work that I want to do specifically with Black folks around existence, well-being, suffering, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, right on. Well, you better bet that I'm going to be following all of the work that you put out in the future very closely. Um, Likewise. All right. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Be well. Talk to you later. Later. This podcast was edited by Charlie Spears. Theme music by Bang Quang. Special thanks to Dr. James Norris and Dr. Erica Lillette for their mentorship and enthusiastic support with this project. I'm your ever-curious host, Ava Bravada-Keating. Thank you for listening. Thank you.